0: It's all they're all family, they're all related, right? And and the magic of the
1: Spanish monarchy, (laughs) the Tudors Dynasty podcast.
0: Hello and welcome back. I'm Rebecca Larson. On this show, we love to discuss women in history. For me, it's a way to finally get their stories out into the world. Because for far too long, these women were just seen as afterthoughts or footnotes in history. So today, I am joined by Dr. Emma cahill Morone to discuss one woman from history whose moniker needs to be debunked. Juana of Castile. Emma welcome hi how are you oh I'm great I'm so excited to talk to you about this lady and I've been oh. pra- I've been practicing on how to say her name but I think I still sound very American
1: you did it very very well <laughs> Juana. It's Juana. Like you have something in your throat you're trying to get it out
0: Juana. yes yeah, So if no, I say, if I say Juana, I apologize to you, but everybody else will understand.
1: <laughs> you know, it, it, and it's true. Sometimes when you speak in, in a language, it's difficult to say things in a different language. I just do it so much now because I just, I, I'm like, I let go. I just let go. I'm, since I'm bilingual, I just let go and it happens. But it's true that it's difficult. It's difficult yeah. when you speak in, in English to then say out of the blue Juana, but Juana it is Juana Primera de Castilla.
0: That just sounds so beautiful when you say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just want to start out by giving a little background because there might be people listening right now who have no idea who she is. And so I'll just say she was the, and if I get this wrong, please correct me. She was the third child of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of, of Aragon and the elder sister of Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Okay, I, right. got, I got this that got This
1: is a right. test today. <laughs> You're getting tested. I that was feel... right, correct. <laughs> okay, carry okay. on. <laughs> okay, good.
0: Well, one of the things that I kind of want to start with, and then I'm going to let you just kind of take the floor, is understanding her childhood and what it's like to be a princess of Spain. Mm-hmm. So, and and she was the daughter of such powerful monarchs at the time. I am interested in knowing what did her education look like?
1: That's, uh, that's a good question because this is a very different generation of women in the, in the Spanish court. Uh, and I say the Spanish court because it is at this time when these uh, four girls and one boy are being raised by Isabella and Fernando, Isabella and Ferdinand, uh, the two monarchs she mentioned. Um, it's the first Spanish court because it's the beginning of that concept of Spain by the unification of Castile and Aragón. Um, so in the case of Juana, uh, she was born in, in third place and, um, she was born right after her brother, her brother, uh, who was the heir, Juan. So Juan and Juana, right? Um, why? Because in the Spanish court, they were, were very devoted to, um, St. John, the evangelist. And, uh, so then... That's that was their um, way to express that devotion by naming their children. Uh, the first one was named after her mother, Isabella Isabel. Uh, she was born in 1470, and she became by birth princess. And I'm going to stay with that word, princess, instead of infanta. Then Juan was born in 1478, uh, and then Juana was born right after that in 1479. So obviously it was... Uh, a very happy moment when she was born in Toledo, a very historical place in the crown of um, Inca still. Um, uh, and then um, she was born um, right after her brother. So it was a, a very happy moment because Isabel and Fernando had their heir, had Juan. So the birth of, of daughters meant uh, that they could uh, start, um, a project to um because they they were thinking about uh, forming alliances with foreign um powers like England they did with Catherine of Aragon they, the birth of a, of a of a daughter meant they had a daughter that could become a queen or uh, uh married to someone in a foreign alliance and then strengthening their power and their international uh bond so when she was born, it was a very happy moment. And think about this: the queen had a daughter in 1470, and then she didn't have another child until 1478. That was eight mm-hmm. years of angst, not wow. having a, what they needed, which is a boy. Um, right. And then they had the boy, and then three girls came in 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 uh, 1479, 1482, and then in 1485, the last one, Catherine of Aragon, the youngest. So Juana uh, was brought up. Not to rule, but definitely in a in a way that uh, she was going to become a queen in a foreign uh, a concert in a foreign alliance. She didn't end up being a queen by marriage but a queen in her own right. Um, by marriage she was she became the Archduchess of Austria. That's who she married. She married Philip of Austria.
0: So to prepare her for mm-hmm. Well, let's just say, you know, in England, it would be a queen consort or something like that. What kind of things did she have to study?
1: So, um, and this was your previous question. I just thought, given a bit of context, let's go into the her specific education as, a, as an infanta. And this is where I'll explain the difference. So in the case of the eldest, she's princess from birth because she is the heiress to Isabella at that moment until her brother is born. And then the boy becomes a prince of Asturias. Uh, like there is a Prince of Wales in England. There is a Prince of Asturias in 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 the Spanish monarchy. Um, then Juana is born after that. And so she's an Infanta. An Infanta is just a, a way to say a Spanish princess. But it's a specific name to the princesses in Spain. So we use that. In the case of the eldest, she was Princess of Asturias because she had the title like Princess of Wales. It is in England, right? Um, Juana was educated. Uh, first of all, she's born into a court where um, her mother is learning Latin at the time. She's um, learning uh, things that she wasn't educated in when she was a child, because uh, Isabel of Castile didn't grow up in the Spanish, in the court of her, of, in the Castilian court of her brother, uh, Henry IV, her half-brother. She grew up with her mother in a, in a very Portuguese court in Arevalo, which was a city that belonged to her mother uh, in her uh, dower. It was, it was a city that belonged to her. Uh, So she grew up there with her brother Alfonso and her brother would have become the king in in any case. So Isabella wasn't um, also meant to to rule. But in the case of Juana, she's born in a time where Isabella is already a queen and, and becoming very powerful. Uh, Isabella and Ferdinand are becoming very powerful. And the queen has embarked herself in not letting others rule for her, but learn things like Latin and learn how to talk to diplomats, how to um, to negotiate all these alliances. She's implicated in all the negotiations. She writes letters to the ambassadors. She's not a queen that sits back and lets Ferdinand do his thing. She's, she's ruling. So this is what the, the daughters see when they're growing up. Um, And then for the first time in the in the history of of Castile, the queen decides that her daughters are going to be educated formally with a tutor like we would have we would go to a school in this case it's just homeschooling right. Um, But um, they had a they had other children at court that they were learning with Um, the, the brother had a separate household so he learned with other boys in court. A bit like Arthur Tudor did in Ludlow, um, and then the the sisters were uh, the younger sisters. The three younger sisters usually studied together. More Juana uh, is Maria, the uh, the fourth one, and Ka- and Catherine, Catalina, more together. Juana also her tutor was different. Her tutor was a, a Dominican friar called um, Antonio de Miranda, uh, and in the case of Catherine and um, And Mary, they had an Italian tutor called Alexandro Geraldini. So they learned uh, Latin like their mother was learning. And there was a very famous woman that that Isabella brought to court called Beatriz Galindo, known as the Latinist. There's there's a whole neighborhood in Madrid named after this woman uh, because she was a specialist in Latin, a woman who specialized in Latin, imagine. And so the queen brought her to court. So she could talk to the to her daughters and the other ladies. So they all learned Latin with the queen. Isabel of Castile was one of these people who were like uh, always thought. Well, I'm going to do this, so everybody needs to follow my lead. <laughs> so um, she basically um, that's and and the girls thrived in that kind of uh, um, atmosphere for many years when they were children. Um, Juana was especially inclined to music. She played the clavichord. Uh, which is a type of like early piano and there's a depiction of the all the girls and the boy um uh in the prado museum it's a 19th century painting but it's it's uh a representation of the queen overseeing their education and you can see that music is present um and juana was a very uh intelligent child um all the daughters of isabel and fernand were intelligent and i think more than intelligent they were just educated They were educated and they saw a lot from their mother. So they were just getting used to seeing women in charge (laughs) and taking charge. And when there's a queen regnant, there's a whole household of women behind her. It's not just a queen. It's a very feminine kind of um, ambiance and um, very interlinked to power and how Isabella just was becoming iconic too during her lifetime even. So... I think it both gave her a lot of self-confidence, but I think it also made it very difficult for Juana when she ended up being her heiress, because it was a lot of to live up to, right? If your mom is Isabel of Castile, imagine that. No pressure.
0: Juana. I can't even imagine, because if you think of England at the same time, there was no thought of having a queen regnant, you know, and, right. and then here exactly. we are. Ac- across the ocean, there's this woman who's ruling on her own and she is educating herself and educating her children likewise, yes. that's just seems so empowering and
1: yeah, and then funding people like Columbus uh because it was the queen who really funded Columbus um mm-hmm. uh, just doing incredible things and I think she was also a very um I don't think she was definitely a, a, an easy person to deal with Isabella of Castile so I think depended a lot on your personality type and and when you have five children obviously they're not all going to be the same right for mm-hmm. example we know her daughter Catherine was very similar to her both physically and in um character but in the case of Juana uh well first she didn't look very much like her mom uh she looked different they all looked like like each other obviously but um she she had dark eyes um darker hair, and even there's an ambassador once that meets Catherine of Aragon. Uh, he's from Venice, I think, yes. and he, No, no, he's a, an ambassador of Margaret of Austria, and he comes uh, when there's going to be a, a painting painted of Mary Tudor Rose, <laughs> Mary Rose Tudor. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about uh, meeting uh, Catherine of Aragon and saying, oh, it was incredible how much the queen looks like her mother, Isabella of Castile and how different she is in character and, and, and presence to her sister, Juana. So people mm. are meeting these, these women, and even though they're family, they're, they're realizing they're very different, not only physically, but in character, which I think is very important. And that brings us back uh, down to the question of why did Juana have such a hard time becoming queen because she never actually, she she ruled a little bit, but not very much. And then she was imprisoned for the rest of her life in 1509. And she lived until 1555. Wow. So it's incredible. What you think about it, the two sisters were imprisoned. Catherine of Aragon was also imprisoned in the last part of her life. So at one point, those two queens, sister queens, were imprisoned by very unfair men. <laughs> I said it.
0: Right. <laughs> it, when you look at it as an outsider and you know in modern time we can clearly just see that they were threatened by these women
1: exactly thank you rebecca this is why i love this show
0: <laughs> well it's obvious when we look yes. at it now they were clearly a threat to these men and the power yeah. that they wanted to hold
1: exactly they were uh they were raised to know that they were women so they they it it, it is a time where women did not have the same rights consideration they're not even um, they're not even, um, some people, some, some scholars even defend that they're not even fit to rule, they're not even smart enough. But there's a debate here called uh, around this time, a previous time, but this time is it's coming up again with humanism called the querelle de femmes, which is really a debate whether women have the capacity to rule uh, and to do the things that men do in a way uh someone who started this was Christine de Pizan, a very famous medieval uh, scholar who defended women in her very famous book about the city of, of ladies. And so there's a lot of recurring debates whether women can rule or not. And I think this is very interesting uh, in the case of Juana. Uh, there's a very famous book by Bethany Aram uh, called Juana the Mad sovereignty and dynasty in renaissance europe that was written in in 2001 um where she talks about this and how it is different in the case of juana than other ruling women like for example uh, elizabeth the in england mm-hmm. who um or isabel of Castile, her own mother and she talks a lot about how not only during their time but afterwards these women who were successful rulers were compared to men and and thought to have manly qualities. Something that was said about Catherine Aragon too. So it was a praise to say that a woman was like a man, right? right? Um, and in the case of women like Juana, the opposite. Like she's crazy because she's a woman and, and she's gone crazy. And and the cruel thing about Juana is, uh, the the belief is that she went crazy for a guy. She was she she was crazy in love, so she she was crazy um which is very unfair because if you think about it uh, Philip did a lot of bad things to her so we would should think about more as being a, a an a victim of abuse than someone who went mad because he she loved him very much she went mad cuz he treated her very poorly mm-hmm. that's why she she had a bounce of depression i think and uh, probably the mistreatment had to do a lot with uh, having a problem that came out of, 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 that of being severely mistreated. I think another woman that has been mistreated like that way is Mary Tudor, Mary the First of England, who was mistreated greatly mm-hmm. and then thought to be very harsh and this. And that. Oh, what are we talking about? We would never judge a man like that, would we? And in the case of the women, I mean, there's there's been mad kings too. None of them, I think, were imprisoned. It's a very famous uh, mad king yeah. of Spain. And he was not, never imprisoned. <laughs> you know? It reminds me a little
0: bit of, I think it's Charles VI of France. Um, the king who thought he was made of glass.
1: Oh, I've you know, I've never heard of this guy, I, but now I want to know more.
0: <laughs> he was actually the father of Catherine of Valois, who married Henry oh. V. Uh, and uh, so it's a very interesting story because then Catherine's son Henry the 6th had some mental illness of his own. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yeah, I mean they never locked him away in a prison, you know, maybe right. they hid him away and other people were ruling but it wasn't right. like he was locked away. I do want to I want to go back a little bit and let's start from the beginning with Juana and her husband Mm -hmm. and how this all played out because she became queen of Castile Mm -hmm. after her mother's death. Yes. And how long did it take? Like she was queen of Castile. How long was it before Philip came in and was like, oh, no, honey, you can't do this job. Right.
1: Yeah. So Juana and Philip were married in 1496. Uh, She traveled to Flanders and she married him. And she became archduchess of Austria, and that's what they were. But then, very soon, in in the Spanish royal family, people start dying left and right. So her sister uh, dies, her the her little baby who becomes a little boy dies. Um, her brother dies before her sister dies. Yeah. Yes, it's it's hard. It's it's a lot of people. So uh, and the queen Isabel of Castile loses t- two children and a grandson. And starts to decline rapidly, too. She, I mean, she's aging, obviously, and she's had a hard life. Um, So Juana and Felipe, Philip, um, come to to Castile to be sworn uh, princes of Asturias. So they become heirs before she becomes queen. And the whole uh, problem starts there. It's Philip always wanting the, the whole power. So the problem, and this book that I was telling about, Bethany Aram, explains it very well. It's that in in Castile, uh, Juana is the reina propietaria, and that cannot be taken away. Because her mom has said the president that a woman can own, which is propietaria means owning. Uh, in England, in English, we say queen regnant, a queen that rules. In, Spain, in Spanish, we say a queen that owns the mm. kingdom, right? Okay. Um, Philip could not take that away. And it's always his, um, since then he's always trying to, um, have the full power to, to, become the King in his own right. And there is a tension because obviously you have to think that he's a foreigner in Castile. Mm-hmm. Juana was born in Castile, raised in Castile. So she was popular and she was a daughter of Isabella of Castile. So when the, and, and then the other thing with Juana is something that this book explains very well. Um, she's very successful in the sense that she has six children very quickly uh, with somewhat, not, not any problem. So first she has Eleanor and they all become, so her two sons become emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V and Ferdinand I, and her four daughters become queens too. So in that sense, she was very, they, they were a very successful couple because they have many children. Uh, but the marital problems start soon. Because Philip, uh, uh, and this happens with Catherine of Aragon too, and this is where I want to talk about the sisters too. Uh, when they fall pregnant, usually the men find mistresses. Mm-hmm. And this is when Juana starts to have trouble with Philip. Lots of trouble. Uh, because she is uh, obviously not happy about it. But uh, the first time that this happens between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, there's also a big problem with the Duke of Buckingham and um, Catherine uh, expresses her grief in public and the king is really embarrassed, Henry VIII, and she never does it again. Mm-hmm. So I think this is where Juana and Catherine were very different. Did it hurt less for Catherine in the no. subsequent? No, it's just a matter of deciding what your attitude is gonna to be towards it and how to uh, probably get the things you want. I think in, in Juana's place, she, uh, case, she just didn't have the same personality as her mother. was very much like Catherine Aragon probably was more like her father probably was more someone who just couldn't keep quiet when something was not uh fair I can relate to that
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can relate to that too (laughs) right but it makes sense doesn't it make
1: sense for a guy it's okay to do that but not for a queen who has to be even if she became the queen and she did eventually and he became king with her and this whole king consort thing is very controversial. He he actually was a king, and like Ferdinand was in Castile during um, Isabella's time. He mm-hmm. was a full king. He did, but the only thing they didn't have, which was the most important, is they couldn't transmit those things to their children. It was she was the one who transmitted her royal powers in Castile to Charles V, her their son, their son right. who became king of with everything an emperor uh, of the holy roman em- uh, empire
0: i'm seeing so, i'm sorry yeah. i'm seeing so many similarities right now between mm-hmm. this story and mary the first and philip
1: well yes exactly exactly it, well you know. and then you have to think that these are descendants of Mar- of of, of. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's all they're all family they're all related right
0: and, and the, the magic
1: of the spanish monarchy
0: <laughs> i think about how um the english subjects or the english nobility were so worried about philip wanting to be king not yes. king consort but king and yes. how they that, just yes. would not allow that to be the case and it makes me wonder if it's because of what they had seen in Spain or if they were just so worried about I don't know I guess I've never really thought about it too much before what do you think
1: I think that it's because this uh foreign king brings foreigners that one thinks and uh mingles in their international affairs and in in the and and if uh foreign king Means of a new d- dynasty and a new house ruling, so nobody wants that. Nobody wants your house to end. Um, and so, this new Philip arrived with a lot of people, a lot of people that that needed to be fed, that needed to have their interests grown. And his network was not just going to be like uh, they were going to get money from from England, and and that's the way the, that's the way kings used also their kingdoms. Um, Philip was King made King of Naples to become King of England so he would marry on the same um, status as, as Mary, but he didn't have the same status as Mary. She was the queen of England and Ireland. I mean she was a powerful one in that dynamic. Uh, and but think about this it's it's been so unfair the way they've been treated because uh, they say they he left her and to to die alone and that's this is not true. He was just defending his interests in Europe. And right. he always showed respect for her, always showed affection for her. Um, there were, and I, I think we have to remember that th- love is never a, a, a question here. Like, not even with Isabel and Friedland. I don't think they were in love. Mm-hmm. I don't think people knew what, what being in love was back in the day. I think they, there was affection and sense of duty and, and affinity. And I think Mary Tudor and Philip, of Habsburg had affinity and constructed uh in a very short time. Uh if you think about their image of power, the the propaganda that they did together, it was very similar to the uh, to Isabella and Fernand. Peter Stefel has studied this a lot. And you know they were modeling after them. So they they were trying to have a future together and they were trying to have uh heirs. So I think It's just a matter of when it's a ruling queen, there's always judgment on her side. She always falls in love too much or is too crazy and has fantasy pregnancies because I want to ask these people who talk about uh, Mary the First fantasy pregnancies if they have access to their uh, records of her gynecologist because I'm not quite sure how they make diagnosis like that about someone from the 16th century. I'm very intrigued.
0: I'm intrigued by that too. Now that you said, I think sometimes it's just so easy to take the word of people. Like, oh, well, they clearly know.
1: I think you've, you're quite right, Rebecca. I think somebody said it once, and it just gets right. repeated. Yeah, they but I don't were. think that person was a gynecologist <laughs> or treated Mary Tudor for her phantom pregnancy. So I'm going to take that, you know, with a grain of salt.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we see the similarities with women yes. rulers. And, um, you know, we and talk- judgment and judgment. <laughs> it's no different today. I don't want to get all political, but, you know, here in the United States, God forbid, if we have a female president, she's too emotional.
1: Oh, yes. You know, oh, <laughs> let's not go into the political <laughs> <laughs>
0: I had to make
1: (laughs) a scene in the U.S. right now because I'm going to start crying. (laughs) (laughs) I just
0: wanted, to, you know, here we are hundreds of years later and we're still Mm -hmm. having the same issues, even though back then women were ruling and they were ruling successfully. Mm -hmm. Somehow we can't learn from history.
1: Well, I can't run for president of the United States because I'm first of all, I'm not a citizen yet, uh, but you can. So (laughs) I would vote for you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well thank you i'm not running
1: oh geez we have to put up with those two guys i can't believe it <laughs> right. they should be retired having a good life
0: right yeah yeah well we need fresh blood <laughs> wait. let's get back to juana oh yes
1: that's what I'm, I'm just
0: gonna keep saying it juana, juana. that's very good
1: actually <laughs> thank i think you. you got it
0: i want to talk a little bit about 1506 And Juana, see, I just did it. Juana Juana and Philip's trip to England. Yes. Can we talk about that? What brought them there? What happened? Tell us all
1: about it. So what brought them there? Bad weather. (laughs) Really bad weather. I talk about this a lot and we have to remember. So they, when they went to be sworn as heirs, they went through France and that's when they met with Louis XII and he said, oh, what a handsome prince this is. And then Philip has been known ever since as Philip the Handsome and uh, Juana as uh, Juana la Loca or jo- Joanna the Mad, which is, I mean, you can't get any, I mean, the pa- the patriarchy strikes back, right? Yes. Uh, but in the case of the 1506, they decided to go when, when Isabella has died, Isabella of Castile. My cat is about to, to make an appearance in... Ooh. Yeah, (laughs) my (laughs) calma falla. Um, So, in 1506, when they when they're going to Castile to to become king and queen of of Castile, they go by sea and they there's a big storm and they have to they end up in England. Which this was common. It is not the first time. It wasn't was not the first time that happened to Juana. And there's a very good story about when this happens and the their boat is about to sink and Philip is crying like a little baby. And Juana just does a Titanic moment, and just is like, "Don't worry, I've never heard of a queen drowning." So uh, Juana has a has a moment there of of really uh, bravery Uh, when she she's like she's the one there to to keep calm and steady in that moment when Philip is just wilting under pressure. But I mean, I would because imagine you're thinking you're gonna drown. So then they arrive and they spend like a month in England. And Henry uh, the Seventh welcomes them, and and this is the only time that Juana ever sees another one of her siblings. If you think about it, wow, because she meets with Catherine, but very briefly. Philip doesn't want her to spend time with her sister because mm. he's a cruel person, just like Henry the Eighth was. Um, he, and he doesn't allow them to be together for a long time. They do meet in, in Windsor Castle. Um, and then um, Philip and and Henry travel around a little bit, and he shows them his palaces, and, and Philip says he's really impressed. Um, and then later, when they leave the court, um, oh, and in this case, it's really interesting when they're in in one of the receptions and and an audience with the king and Philip is there and and Catherine too, Catherine invites Philip to dance and he says no. Hmm. And the reason for this is because at this same time, Catherine of Aragon is already an ambassadress of the Spanish monarchy and she's defending Ferdinand of Aragon's interests in England (laughs) against Philip of Hasburg who had been plotting against Ferdinand, especially with the people in Catherine's English household and this became known by the, English, by the Spanish ambassador, and he told Catherine, and she took action. So this is why when Philip arrives, he's like, I don't want to do anything with you. You're plotting against me. And she's like, well, I'm still going to dance because I'm the best ambassadress of the world. So, um, and, and this happens. And then when they leave and they go to Spain, uh, Philip dies very quickly. They take power, but Philip dies very quickly in very suspicious circumstances Mm. right after Ferdinand of Aragon leaves. Um, So Mm. the rumor was that Ferdinand of Aragon poisoned Philip of Hasburg.
0: This makes sense to be honest. As somebody who's only vaguely studied this history, I know that Ferdinand wanted his daughter's throne and what better way than to get his son-in-law out of the way?
1: He was annoying. He didn't want, he wasn't letting him do his thing, which has been, Ferdinand knew he couldn't have Castile for himself because of what we've talked about, about her. He knew his daughter was Reina Proprietaria, but he knew he could manipulate her and use her. So he did. So, and she had a son. Uh, Charles had already been born. So he thought, I'll, 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 I'll get him out of the picture. That's what I think. I don't know. Um, so in this case, after this happens, Juana really, obviously, if your husband dies in very suspicious circumstances and people are saying your dad killed him, you might go through a little bit of a bad time, don't you think? Uh, so she does. Um, this is where all the legend of Juana starts because um, she doesn't want to be um, far away from his uh, uh, body and and they start a whole procession because philip had um left in his will that he wanted to be buried in granada and they were in burgos so that's a long distance to go from burgos to granada so they start going south in in this um procession that only travels at night mm. uh, and for months of traveling she's pregnant and then she ends up having their daughter after his death and she names her catherine after her sister oh wow and this is when her sister starts to try to bring her to england to marry henry the seventh isn't that just incredible
0: oh see that's a connection i don't think i knew existed there
1: there you go yes so catherine of aragon is trying to find a new wife for henry the seventh to try to strengthen her own marriage because uh since her mother died she wasn't as important because she wasn't the daughter of the queen of Castile anymore so she she tries to to bring Juana to, to marry uh, Henry VII. Um, but that doesn't work out because Ferdinand doesn't want to let go of Juana. She's too precious. She's the queen. Mm. And finally, what happens is um, he imprisons her in 1509, the year that Catherine of Aragon becomes queen of England. Yeah. Juana of Castile is imprisoned in Tordesillas forever with her daughter, with her little daughter, uh. Catherine. Yeah, it's just sad. It's extremely sad. Uh, she gets visits from her relatives uh, occasionally, usually to get something from her. Mm. The other only time that she becomes quite relevant, but uh, is in 1520, when a movement called Comuneros or oh, there were um, it was a revolt against the rule of Charles of Hasbro because he was a foreigner. Let's remember, he was brought up by Margaret of Austria. So when he became king of Spain, he didn't even know Spanish. He had never visited Spain. Oh, wow. Yeah, we have to remember this. Uh, so the comuneros go to Tordesillas where the queen is imprisoned and they try to force her to, to support a rule of her own rule against her son. And for all the, the madness that people have claimed, Juana does not cave and does not sign anything against her son. So this has been an argument also used by Aram and other uh, authors to say that, you know, a mad person would have had a different attitude probably towards this. Maybe she just didn't want to rule, and that's that's I think one of the main. Um, there was a biography of Juana published last year by a Spanish historian. And it's like a psychobiography, like a psychological biography, and uh, because she's such a you know this, she's been studied in more from that perspective, obviously. Um, one of her claims is that maybe she didn't want to rule. Maybe she she didn't have the the interest in doing that. Really? But she still didn't go against the interests of her son, which would have been, you know, if she was that mad and she had been imprisoned for so long. Maybe you'd think someone would have a different reaction than to protect your son and his dynastic rights. So yeah, I, she's a very interesting figure. I I I don't really think she was mad. I think she probably had a uh, bounce of depression and other, um, other historians like Salama, who studies a lot, um, her artistic influence in Spain claims that she might've had schizophrenia or some sort of uh, condition, mental health condition, which is typical and normal even nowadays. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was true, but we don't have, we didn't have a, a psychiatrist there, so we don't know.
0: Right, <laughs> you mentioned her artistic influence. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, Juana, because she inherits inherits the crown, she inherits the treasure and and and, and a lot of things. And she has also think about this. She goes and becomes archduchess of Austria, and she goes to the Low Countries where art is flourishing, and she buys things like tapestries. Thought she had a very very Fine uh, tapestry collection. Uh, this was published in, in we published a book two two three years ago in Arte de Genero about um, Isabel of Castile and her daughters. And one of the articles talks about this magnificent uh, tapestry collection that she had. Uh, Miguel Angel Calama, who I've mentioned before, also mentions uh, also talks about uh, how this became part of uh, Catherine of Austria her her uh, her daughter's dowry. So it, it spreads to Portugal and other places. So she's influential in the dissemination of um, Netherlandish art in in Castile. She's responsible for that because she her daughters inherit a lot of these pieces too. My coworker Melania Soler Monatón has worked on this, and last year she published an, uh, last year the year before an article on. Uh, she becomes a very iconic uh, figure because of her portraits and images, devotional images. Um, where she is a donor, and these are done by leading, um, leading Netherlandish artists. Uh, her, her manuscripts, illuminated manuscripts, are very famous. There's a very famous one in the British Library known as the Hours of Juana of Castile because it has her portraits and her coats of arms. And listen to this, another connection with Catherine of Aragon. This uh, manuscript that is in the British Library, and now finally we can access the catalog again, I think, Um, was uh, illuminated by Gerard Horenboot, Susanna Horenboot's father. Oh yeah. Yeah. Gerard Horenboot, who ended up working for Henry VIII, um, uh, migrating to England. So this was part of my dissertation when I studied that uh, transfer of these artists from Flanders to England and how Catherine had already known their art for, for decades because her sisters and her and her mom were commissioning these manuscripts done by the artists of Margaret of Austria in Flanders. Isn't this incredible? This is why Juana is so important. She owned uh, also portraits of Catherine of Aragon. She had several portraits oh. of Catherine of Aragon, yes, as Princess of Wales. So I think those portraits that we were talking about in the in other show and the other episode, These uh, were the portraits that Juana could have had because her things, her possessions that went to her daughters, and this has been studied by Melania Soler Monaton, so a lot more will come in in the near future about that dissemination of all her artistic uh, pieces into the women that became the powerful women in the second half of the 16th century in the Spanish monarchy.
0: Wow. And you said Catherine of Aragon and her daughter Mary... Had somebody come and teach them how to paint? I think in the last episode, do yes. we do we know if? Wana- oh, you picked on
1: that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought that was fascinating. That was something I had never heard before. Was this something that her sister was learning as well, or while she was imprisoned, was she painting, or do we know what she
1: was doing? Oh, this is a really good question because uh, you would have to read Miguel Angel Falama. He has done. He has several books that talk about her her everyday life. There's one in open access we can share. It is in Spanish, so everybody's going to be practicing some Spanish this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, I think it's called Vida Cotidiana, and it's you know her her daily life. Um, and we know about. Times where when they visit her and how they take away things. And Charles V especially did yeah. that. Um, so, yes, we do have a lot of information on, on that, but we it's, it's in Spanish. It's published in Spanish. Um, I never heard of her painting, per se. But this is why I suggested this is because I I kept thinking about what would have been Susanna Hornbott's role in the court of Catherine of Aragon, and because later on, and this brings us back to Philip and Mary, uh, Philip, when he goes back to Spain after Mary Tudor dies, he he brings, he has Sofonisba Anguissola, his, his wife, uh, Elizabeth of Valois, has Sofonisba Anguissola in her court painting for them. Um, and because of all the work that has been done in this artist, I thought that makes sense that Jana would have been um, there to do the same for Mary, who was being raised as a Renaissance princess. She has all these manuals being um, being commissioned by Queen Catherine to educate her, and in many of these manuals, the um, the humanists reference painting and mm-hmm. tapestries, and so and we know Catherine of like I said, was painting coats of arms and pendants and things. So it just makes total sense to me. You know that you would bring a Flemish young woman, like Catherine had had La Latina to teach her Latin. You would bring a Flemish young woman to teach your daughter how to how to paint. Because think about what Melanie said that she wouldn't have needed to be chaperoned because she she was a woman, right? Right. That makes sense, doesn't it?
0: It does.
1: When you're teaching someone how to paint, I'm I'm not an expert in painting, but you 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 close, you know. It's, it's not something... So I think that makes total sense to me, that you would bring a whole family, not just Susanna, the whole family, and, and the men would run the, the workshop because we know Susanna Horembout's mother was involved and we know that it was the women who delivered the illuminated manuscripts by Henry VIII's uh, accounts sometimes. Um, This is all work in progress, though, but it's so exciting. Wow. (laughs) I
0: feel like we've covered so much about her today, but there's still more to uncover. I'm just glad to introduce her maybe a little more clearly to the listeners and help them see a different side of her that she wasn't the mad. There was more to this woman.
1: Yes, there was definitely more. It's very unfair. Uh, Charles V had a bounce of depression and ended up uh, leaving court and, and abdicating. Mm. So, and we don't call him Charles the Mad. Um, so I think, yes, uh, I think we, we should just call her Juana I de Castilla, so Joanna First, and then explain what happened to her, what we know happened to her. And that's how, how I think... These monikers sometimes are great, and sometimes why why is it always... The, the women get the worst ones right don't you don't you think
0: it's interesting isn't it
1: yeah it's interesting <laughs> i wonder why we don't need to wonder we really know oh we know everybody knows
0: <laughs> well emma do you want to leave the listeners with any last thought on rupana
1: oh she's a great uh historical figure she needs a lot more attention uh, in a positive way. I think uh, female historians are doing a great job, so this is shout-out to them. Uh, and I know somebody's interesting when I want to learn more and more about them. And as I was preparing for this episode, I was just like, I, I'm so focused on Catherine that I, I, I forget how interesting her sisters are, you know? And going back to this book that we uh, published in 2020, in Arte Padre Genero, uh, it's just such... It was so unknown before this book, and now it it seems like there's so many open avenues to keep sending these women that it's just incredible. So anyone who wants to start um, anything on the Daughters of Isabel of Castile, they're fascinating. So come to us, Arte General and we'll, we'll get you started.
0: I love it. Emma, thank you so much for coming back on the show today and talking to me about this fascinating woman. Thank you. Yes, thank you.